I was a uh, practicing clinician working in a home health agency model. I wasn't allowed to dose my patients as per best practice guidelines. So I said, there's gotta be a way to do this better. My, my grandmother and my grandfather, I started seeing them going in and out of long-term care. It started personal seeing the sick side of 80, and now it's been exciting to be part of Fox. Light bulb moment, like that's a complete game changer. You can see what we can do as a practice and as treating clinicians to really make 80, 85 look so much different than it did back that long ago. And boil it down into one say, it's quite simply this, it's be stronger, live better longer. Welcome to Fox Rehabilitation's Live Better Longer podcast, the podcast dedicated to clinicians who work with older adults. My name is Jim Shear, and today I am joined by Dr. Sunita Tamala. Sunita, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. I'm thrilled to be here. We know each other, and for me, this podcast is a dream come true because it is a collision of two of my worlds, Fox Rehabilitation and Sirius XM Volume. Very cool. So I used to work at Sirius XM Volume, and there was a group of listeners called the Volumaniacs, and Sunita, correct me if I'm wrong, you are a member of the Volumaniacs. I'm a card-carrying member of this obsessive fan group called the Volumaniacs that loved everything that you and your co-host did on Sirius XM Volume. That's how the name came to be. And we knew of you because the Volume Maniacs, they would tweet us during the shows, they would call us up, and we also developed a kinship and a friendship for the Volume Maniacs. It was a lovely thing. Yeah, lightning in a bottle and great uh, things have grown from it. And I remember during my time at SiriusXM Volume, there was rumblings about Sunita. I'm like, she does like medical stuff. <laughs> It was shocking, perhaps. You know, Sunita, <laughs> she probably needs music that probably like helps her in her life. Like, why can't Sunita be a music fan just because she's a doctor? I will tell you, music and like the shows on Sirius XM are constantly what helped me through this day. I've always been an avid music fan, but learning and geeking out about being able to geek out about music with a joint community was wonderful. And it really was sort of constant companion during these long hours that neurologists sometimes work. Yeah, th that that makes me feel good because what you do, you save lives. But if we can help someone who saves lives, you know, we, we can go to bed easily at night. We're all just trying to make the world a better place. That's right. right. That's right. So <laughs> we met for the first time in person a few weeks ago. And I was asking about your job and you brought up strokes. And I said, Sunita, stop right there. I think... Our worlds can collide because May is Stroke Awareness Month. You should come on the podcast in May and talk about strokes. And voila, look and, at this. And here we, we are. Yeah. Here we are. All right. So first of all, Sunita, let's start with your origin story. Before we get into that, I should give everyone your title. So you are a neurologist. Correct. And medical director of the McLaren Stroke Program in Flint, Michigan. I am. Yep. All right, so you would be qualified to speak about strokes during Stroke Awareness Month. I would like to think so. so <laughs> no, and I'm happy to do so. I think, um, you know, I'm a big advocate for Stroke Awareness Month, and I'm happy that uh, so much of what we do in neurology, especially within stroke, is learning or trying to teach people to recognize kind of what happens before they hit the door. So it's a big piece of it. 
So absolutely. Right, I've so- been in this role now for about 17 years, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. All right. It's hard so- to believe when I'm 20. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So why neurology? So I went into medicine because I was sort of really wanting to kind of in some way change the world. And I was fortunate enough to have um, a great kind of mentor come through and talk when I was early on in my training about the role for uh, the changes in neurology. Because for a long time, we didn't have treatment options that were available for people who had a stroke. People would come in and they'd have their stroke. And we would do a lot of the therapy options, which we still do, but there weren't really medical treatments that we could provide that were really making a significant impact in reversing symptoms. But in uh, the 90s, heading into the 2000s, there was medication that became available, what we call IV Alteplase or IV TPA, that really became a game changer in acute stroke. And I started thinking like, this is just opening up a whole world of treatment options for patients that really didn't exist there before. And we're still seeing a lot of those changes in different fields within neurology, with gene therapy. So um, it made me switch what I was doing because the other thing that I love about neurology is that it all kind of really makes sense. You should be able to treat and, you know, trace every type of symptom you're having, be it the muscle group, be it weakness, numbness, whatever it is, back to a specific part of the brain. So it's kind of like solving a piece of a puzzle. So you're a problem solver and a game changer. That's why you got into neurology. I love how you spin this. Absolutely. (laughs) I was going with hardcore geek, but this sounds much better. (laughs) All right. So I'm just curious. Take me through your typical day or week. As part of my job, you know, centering around stroke specifically. So I see patients in the office as well as in the hospital. Predominantly what I do involves, um, you know, acute stroke treatment. So when someone comes to the hospital, identifying that that's the problem and then looking into either medical management. So if we can give them medications to reverse um, these symptoms that they're having or determining if they need a procedure to pull out a blood clot from within, you know, one of the blood vessels going to the brain or opening up some of the blood vessels to help blood flow go to the brain. Now, would you do that? Would you do that procedure, Sunita? Mm -hmm. So you're a brain surgeon, right? No. You're not? No, not brain surgery. That would be a neurosurgery. Yes, sorry to disappoint. I had so many brain surgeon jokes that I cannot use right now. You can still try. I'll pretend to laugh. (laughs) But yes. All right. So Sunita, continue. What do you do on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis? So then it's a matter of dealing with acute stroke and then also helping with the recovery process. You know, even though a lot of patients can get to the hospital on time, we don't always have those interventions available for patients. So then it's a matter of getting them on the right medication, trying to identify what brought this whole thing on, and then working towards you know, ultimately getting patients their lives back as much as we're able to. Yes, I like that. And back to you being a problem solver. So it is Stroke Awareness Month. Stroke Awareness Day is actually in October. Do you know why they're not in the same month? Don't call me out. Do you know why? No, I don't. Or are you honestly asking? Oh, (laughs) no, I I don't. I don't. don't. Because one's in May, one's in October. But um, what should we do for Stroke Awareness Month? So I think one of the biggest issues is being able to recognize the symptoms of a stroke and what kind of brings on a stroke. So I always tell everybody that a stroke is a blockage of a blood vessel, a blood flow going to the brain. If it happens in the heart, it's a heart attack. If it happens in the brain, it's a stroke. And really identifying risk factors, because it'd be great if we could prevent this from happening because stroke right now is one of the six leading causes of death in the United States. 
And they estimate that one person is suffering from a stroke every 40 seconds in this country. So really trying to prevent this as much as possible is what we really as neurologists are striving for. So I think it's important to, there's this, you know, uh, phrase that we always say is know your numbers or know your conditions because the risk factors for a stroke are if you're over the age of 55, if you have a history of high blood pressure, if you have a history of diabetes, high cholesterol, if you're a smoker, if you've had a heart attack before, an irregular heart condition called atrial fibrillation, or if you have a significant family history of premature stroke or premature heart disease, which we would consider under the age of 55, any one of those things is an independent risk factor for stroke. And most people um, nowadays you know, may have one or even more of those. So it makes all of those conditions put you at a higher risk of having stroke. And so I always say that all of the blood vessels in our body, like I mentioned, are like nice. They should be like a rubber hose, if you will, like where the water going through that is how the blood should normally go through there without any turbulence and good flow. What happens as we get older, regardless of what we do, even under the best of circumstances, is those blood vessels become harder, hardened, excuse me. And so that's that process we refer to as atherosclerosis or arteriosclerosis. It's just hardening of those blood vessels or stiffening of that rubber hose, if you will. And in addition to stiffening, they become narrower. So they're kind of becoming clogged. So again, any one of those processes, so being over the age of 55, it's going to make that happen regardless, but you add in each of those risk factors and that process happens all the more quickly. So if that blood vessel gets blocked off, that leads to a stroke and the symptoms that you have all depend on the part of the brain that are affected. Question about genetics. So even if you don't smoke and you have a, you know good blood pressure, how do you stay on top of it? So usually it's genetics are if there's a family history of what we call a clotting condition. So some condi genetic conditions predispose people to forming clots where they, you know, even despite not having any of those other conditions. So that would be something that maybe they would know or if somebody has a stroke under the age of 55. That's kind of when people, uh, light bulbs should go off where you go looking for other causes for that. But if it's above the age of 55, stroke is just such a common condition in general that it doesn't necessarily mean that it's running in the family. So it's always important to say, if somebody will say, yeah, my dad had a stroke or my grandmother had a stroke, I always say, do you know how old they were when they had it? Because that's the real variable to see. Is it something that runs in the family where you and or other family members should be screened? Or is it more likely just due to this natural process of getting older and these other risk factors? And you talked about the arteries being like a, a rubbery hose. Mm -hmm. what's the best way to keep those arteries as rubbery as we can for as long as possible? Keeping all of those risk factors in check really makes a difference. And then exercise really makes a difference. You know, this is a condition where we all strive for at least 20 minutes of exercise minimum three times a week really makes a difference with that. Isn't it wild that Throughout our lives, we're told to exercise, stay hydrated, get a lot of rest. And then when it comes down to these major conditions, like sometimes mm -hmm. it's just so simple things like exercise every day. It's Correct. so important. It's so important. It really is. I think exercise is a big thing, but I also really want to stress the importance of identifying those risk factors. So going to the doctor, getting a checkup. And because I think there's also a tendency to, for people to think that, oh, you can only have high cholesterol if you're overweight. That's not the case, you know? And so it's really important to have your blood work done to see where those risk factors lie to identify that. And then how do you treat a stroke? Now, I know 
because uh, we had Dr. Jay Mako on a couple weeks ago, and he gave us the acronym Be Fast, like balance, yeah. eyes, face, arm, speech, time. If one of those is off, get to the hospital as quickly as possible. He also told us, too, that if you're having a stroke, don't have a family member drive you. Call 911 so they can get the hospital set up. Make sure that the ambulance takes you to the right hospital so you can get treated as quickly as possible. So let's say that someone does have a stroke and they make it out okay. They're able to get out of the hospital. How do you then treat that? So once somebody's in the hospital and they... Oh, you mean once they're out of the hospital once, or kind of out of that emergent emergency room situation? Sure, out of when, once they're out of that emergency room situation. Sure. So a lot of times once they've had their stroke, let's say, then a lot of it is really trying to go back and identify what really brought it on. So blood work to screen for all of those things that I looked at. And then you really want to make sure that we do a test of the heart called an echocardiogram because you want to make sure that even if there may be a little bit of blood vessel narrowing, we want to make sure that the heart is pumping adequately enough to get blood up through those blood vessels into the brain um, properly and efficiently enough. And also you want to make sure that there aren't clots sitting in the heart that could go break off and block one of those blood vessels further upstream within the brain. In addition to that, and usually most of this is done in the emergency room, you want to make sure that the blood vessels that supply blood to the brain are open. So making sure that they're not blocked in the neck and also within the brain as well. And then medication's a big deal. So getting onto the right medication to treat the appropriate cause makes a difference as well. And I can't stress it enough. You know, aspirin is still the best thing that we can do to prevent future strokes once you've had one or even a mini stroke. And a lot of people be like, oh, it's just aspirin, but it works kind of like liquid plumber. It makes your blood thin enough to get through those <laughs> blood, you know, to get through those narrow clogged pipes or, or hoses, if you will. And in addition to that, oftentimes it's getting onto a cholesterol medication as well, because that also kind of, in addition to lowering the bad cholesterol, it sort of Teflon coats the inside of those blood vessel walls. So things don't, those pieces of plaque that build up that cause those blood vessels to narrow don't stick to the inside of those blood vessel walls. You've given three or four analogies today that really explain <laughs> things clearly, which I appreciate. Thank you. I think it's really important for people to understand kind of the mechanism behind this because, you know, we just want people to really, you know, be in possession of all the tools to make the right decisions for getting better. Sunita, Fox Rehabilitation, we treat older adult patients. In most cases, it's 65 and up. So if someone had a stroke, how often should they go to a doctor to get that checked out? So after the fact, it really depends on the severity of the stroke and the types of symptoms that people are having afterwards. So sometimes that can be every three months, it may be every six months, it may be once a year, depending on how they're progressing, and also the types of symptoms that they're having. There are issues that people can have after a stroke. So it's really important to have continued care. And then, Sunita, because it is Stroke Awareness Month, have you had to do many of these throughout the month of May? Because I, uh, I saw you on the Michigan News at one point. I saw a clip of that on YouTube. Oh, gosh. I've had not. So we haven't yet gotten it going this year yet, but I have had to do this kind of periodically throughout the years. And one of the, the things that I do as well is speak at our stroke support group, which uh, I love. So it's dealing and helping patients who have had a stroke as well as friends and family members come in because this is a long-term thing. It's a, you know, for most patients, it's a life-changing thing and it doesn't affect just them, but, you know, loved ones as well. 
So it's really trying to get back to a new normal for them. Well, Sunita, thank you for doing this. We still need to take a break because I I have some music questions to ask you. But uh, during that portion of the interview, how many times did you roll your eyes? (laughs) None. I I love hearing this. I love it. I love it. All right. You weren't like, oh, gosh, why why did he frame the question like that? He's such an idiot. Not at all. Oh, okay. Good, good. That makes me feel better. All right. So let's take a break. When we come back, we have more with Dr. Sunita Tamala right here on Fox Rehabilitation's Live Better Longer podcast. All right. As we take a quick break, just a reminder to check out Fox Rehabilitation's Fox 5 series, the show that explores Fox rehabilitation through an original list created by a Fox colleague. So if you would like to check out the latest episode, you can go to careers.foxrehab.org. Up at the top, click on the blog link and you can see all of the episodes. On a recent episode, I chat with Krista Durier, University Relations Specialist for Fox Rehabilitation, and she gives five interview tips for newly graduated clinicians. Tis the season, graduation time, and a lot of clinicians will be studying for their tests, taking their tests, and then they look for that first job out of school. So if you would like to ace the interview, I highly encourage you to check out the Fox 5 featuring Krista Durier once again, giving five interview tips for newly graduated clinicians. We are back on Fox Rehabilitation's Live Better Longer podcast. I am chatting with neurologist and medical director of the McLaren Stroke Program in Flint, Michigan, Dr. Sunita Tamala. So like we mentioned at the top of the episode, we know each other through music. And when I met you in person for the first time a few weeks ago, you were in New York City to see Bono's one-man show. So, Sunita, how was it? Oh, I absolutely loved it, Jim. It was really a moving experience for me. I'm such a huge U2 fan, and it was really wonderful to hear kind of all of these anecdotes that hit kind of every emotional peak I look for when I'm going to any type of, you know, music or entertainment event. Was it like... I highly recommend 10 out of 10. Yeah, was it like... Bruce Springsteen show and the way it was set up where it was part story, then he would go into song, back into story? Yes. Unfortunately, I haven't seen Springsteen's show. I wasn't able to, but I was told by some of the other people that have seen both that it's along those lines, yeah. Okay. And what was the the high point for Bono's show? Uh, Many. I'm still kind of reveling in it, even a month later. So I'm trying to figure out what the moment was, but it it ends on such a high note. It it was a very exhilarating, uplifting feeling. My only criticism was that I felt that it ended too quickly, you know, even though it was a solid runtime. So, Oh, wait, how long, how long was it? I want to say it was a 70 or 90 minutes. I can't, I I apologize. I can't remember off the top of my head. No. All right. So it's like an hour 20, hour and a half, and you still felt like (laughs) you wanted more. Oh, absolutely. And I think most of the people that went to the show echoed that sentiment as well. And when he played live, what was the instrumentation? Was there someone else on stage playing guitar? He had a harpist in the back. Oh. He had, yes. And then there, so there were two women. One was the harpist and the other was doing violin, I believe. 
And then there was somebody on were there keys. I feel like there were drums. I can't, it's pathetic. I saw this back to back and I can't remember, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was stunning, you know, because some of it was a bit, you know, it, acoustic. It was sort of acapella. His voice sounded remarkable. I, I really will say better than I've ever heard it. And I've Whoa. seen you live, you know, multiple times. So interesting because I wouldn't have thought that, you know, as we all get older, obviously the voice doesn't always come along for the ride as well. Right. Like you think you would have seen him at his peak years ago, but you're saying the best you saw him was just a few weeks ago. Just vocally speaking, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now we, we got into this briefly a few weeks ago. Your favorite musical acts of all time. Like some people like me, I could name you my favorite musical act. Other people are like, well, I don't have a favorite. So if you don't have a favorite, some of your favorites. So the Beatles are my favorite. And, you know, so much so it's like another multiple levels above where everybody else stands. Close follow-ups, it's it's hard to pin down because there are so many, but I'll throw out the ones that are front to mind right away. Uh, Stevie Wonder, Led Zeppelin, Madonna. I have recently added Taylor Swift to this Whoa! Okay. Okay. I was a closeted Taylor Swift fan for a long time, but then I really kind of thought, like, I am such a fan of everything that this woman stands for. The way she's kind of, you know, really turned the music industry on its head, and so I think she's a powerful role model for people in general, not just a female role model, but for anybody. No, you're right. You're right. For Senna Swifty. I mentioned to you that I'm a Beasties fan, but I'm nowhere near in the Legion or like League of Jim Shear. Uh, but who is? Yeah, I mean, who is? But okay, I, this, so this wait. is very true. <laughs> All right, Beastie Boys. What's your favorite Beastie Boys album? So I probably have to go with Paul's Boutique, even though I was just saying to another fellow volumaniac yesterday that I don't know how to not call License to Ill is what got me into the Beasties, mm-hmm. but I do not know how to say that Paul Revere is not my favorite. Like, I know there are better songs by them, but oh my God, I just love that so much. <laughs> no matter how much I've heard it over and over again, I do these rap videos or kind of quasi rap videos for my kiddos when they go back to school every year. Paul Revere was one of the ones we did for second grade or third grade. It's just... Wait, whoa, 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 uh, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, back up. You do rap videos for your kids as they prepare for a new school year? Rap is used very loosely, first of all. Let's just <laughs> make that clear. But uh, we've done a couple of them, yeah. But my kids are, uh, you know, used to kind of go along with it because they didn't know any differently. We'll see what happens <laughs> moving forward for this next school year. They just thought this was the norm. And then I, I, like a year or two ago, they were like, you mean other people don't do this? And I was like, oh, sure they do. Wait, where where can these videos be seen? Or is it just for your Nowhere. family? I, I am. I mean, there. Nobody needs to see these. They're not worth seeing. I, but it's fun. I would like to see it, but but if it's just a family thing, I understand. They're up there on my social media from probably back in the day, but I don't know. Oh, At any rate, okay. And wait, how old are your kids now? I have twin twelve-year-old boys. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they're getting at that age where. It might not be cool, even though I think it's awesome. To them, it might not be cool that their mom's rapping to them on the first day of school. 100%. <laughs> it's mortifying, really, for me, because like, I cannot rap. But, you know, they're, they're great. They've been great sports when they didn't know what was what they were doing, really. And then that, last year, they kind of humored me. So, like I said, I'm curious to see if it'll happen moving forward. All right. But it's been fun and great memories. So I'll hit you up with a couple more questions because you are in the middle of your workday. And I hope mm-hmm. I would hope that a patient wouldn't have to wait because I asked too many questions. So uh, <laughs> first question out of two, 
When you are doing a procedure, do you listen to music? 100%. And actually, one of my very first phone calls into volume on the debatable show is I brought up that whenever I'm doing a procedure, I always offer patients, like, what do they want to hear? And, you know, I, you hear everything under, like, requests for anything and everything. And so if I have choice, it's usually what they want to hear. If I have a choice, it really depends on the mood that day. So it can vary from anything really out of all the different music that I'd like to listen to. Give me, like, give me an example. I'm just curious. So things that are very calming. I have some patients that don't know, and they'll say, put on whatever you feel like. So Jack Johnson's album, some Jack Johnson, I think, goes over really well in any type of procedure. Or I could see that. Room. That makes sense. Yeah, it's just very soothing. I used to actually put my kids to sleep to it um, way back in the day. And so that, like, so Jack Johnson reads really well. Nora Jones uh, is another thing that's, like, very calming for people. Um, you know, I do a lot of sort of softer Beatles. And it's interesting that, yeah, I'm always curious to see kind of what patients will pick because in my mind, I sort of have them pinned for a certain genre or whatever. <laughs> and I love seeing if I'm right or wrong. But if they're like, I want some Slayer, does that throw you off? No, I actually, you know, so, and I think just because I am such a music fan and interestingly enough, they've shown that, you know, it can help increase focus when you have any type of music going. It doesn't necessarily have to be soft and smooth. So a lot of patients want that to calm them. But from a procedural standpoint, like I don't have an issue if it's metal or, you know, rap or whatever would be considered, you know, hard rock, anything. I'm okay with that. You are the cool not speaking for everybody. No, <laughs> not yeah, speaking for yourself, yeah. but to Disclaimer, me, please, but yes. <laughs> to me, you sound like one of the coolest neurologists ever. One of, I mean, I thought I'm the. <laughs> no, you are the, you are the. Right, right. All right, so last question. The volume maniacs who listen to SiriusXM volume on the SiriusXM dial, sadly, volume is no longer on SiriusXM. And a lot of the listeners have created their own shows on the app Amazon Amp. So my question is, does Sunita have a show on Amazon Amp? I do not have a show yet, but I want to. I've listened to all of so many of uh, my fellow Volumaniac shows on this Volumaniac radio network. And I, I love hearing the diverse music that they throw and the shows that they throw together. And I also love hearing the context behind why they've chosen these songs, because otherwise I could just listen to my playlist all day long. You know, I love sort of hearing what brings these songs, what makes them meaningful to them or irreverent to them whenever they bring them through. I wanting to put together one. I just haven't had the time yet, but stay tuned. Okay. But what would be the premise of your show? So I recently, I mean, there's a couple of different ones. I don't know if I've thought it through that much, but I have had a really big birthday recently, hit a big demographic checkbox. And I was going to sort of <laughs> do either this through the decades or like kind of key moments in my life. Uh, yeah. Or just sort of like first musical experiences because, you know, what kind of different people in my life who kind of exposed me to different genres of music and kind of how it got me to where I am now. It's in the works. Yeah, I like that. And of course, you would have to find time to do that. Yeah. Because being a mother and a neurologist, you probably don't have a whole bunch of downtime. I'm so happy that you put it in that order because, you know, mother definitely trumps neurologist. But <laughs> I mean, hey, we all have a lot on our plate. It's just a matter of trying to find the time. All right. Well, Sunita, thank you for finding the time to do the Live Better Longer podcast today. I appreciate it. 
Oh, you're totally welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Jim, I want to tell you really fast about some really neat uh, data, if you have like two minutes. I have, I have, yeah, I'll, give, I'll give you three minutes. I, I have all the time <laughs> in the world. You're the one who may not have time, but go for it. No, it's so perfect. I know that um, part of what you do is working, you know, with rehab and things like this. So I can't stress enough how crucial speech therapy and physical therapy and occupational therapy plays in the recovery of stroke patients after a stroke. So one of the really cool studies that came out is um, how effective music therapy can be on improving recovery. So not just speech and language function, but cognition, improving motor function, also helping, you know, alleviate mood and negative mood that a lot of times people can have after a stroke. And um, there's a really neat study that came out in 2017 that about the types of music that seem to make the most difference in people who have problems after a stroke. And so songs by Queen, Pink Floyd, Bob Marley, and Elvis and different versions of the song You Are My Sunshine were found to be like the top five groups and songs that really made a difference. And the number one song was Take a Pick. Of those bands that I mentioned, or those artists that I mentioned, if you had to pick, do you know which one you would choose? It's not Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd, which you might think might be. <laughs> um, is it, it is a- not Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley. No. Um, is it a Queen song? It is a Queen song. There you go. What would it be? I, I wouldn't think it would be We Will Rock You, right? That would be... You too- should think it is We Will Rock You. Because, I mean, it's so surprising. Yes, yes. So how they like have found this out is they hook people up to, you know, the scanner, they're measuring reaction within the brain and what part of your brain is lighting up when you're hearing these different songs. And um, they found that We Will Rock You stimulated so many different neural networks and people kind of across the board that it was the number one song that was shown to make an improvement in cognitive recovery post-stroke. Isn't that fascinating? Because I think people have, yes. Wild because it's so simple. It's like boom, boom, clap. Boom, boom, clap. Exactly. So I think it stimulates like not just the rhythm centers, but so, you know, tempo is one thing, but also it's so affiliated with, you know, so many different sporting teams and activities. So across the world, it's a song that kind of no matter where you're from, like I've been to sporting events in India and heard that song. I know, and obviously in the UK, it's, you know, everywhere you go. So it triggers those memories, the part of the brain that controls memories. And then people are so used to stomping their feet during the song. So it activates those motor neural networks. It's fascinating. So you held out on that till the end. (laughs) You're like, hold on, hold on. Now I'm going to drop the mic. See you later. (laughs) So what you're saying, Sunita, is that all Fox clinicians should bring a boom box with them and play We Will Rock You to patients who have had strokes. Absolutely. I love it. Well, Sunita, thank you for the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So for Dr. Sunita Tamala, my name is Jim Shear, and we will see Yins later. 